Well, our text today is from Psalm 40, and Psalm 40 um, reminds us really in some ways about how we should and we should not encounter the Psalms. Uh, Most of us encounter the Psalms by little snippets that we have hanging maybe on a refrigerator magnet or perhaps on a screensaver. And I want to dedicate this psalm uh, exposition to the Antetenho family because one thing I love about the psalms is that the psalms, one of the ways of looking at the psalms is as 150 life journeys. And these life journeys are kind of like preset journeys that God has given to us that help us throughout so much of the contours of life itself. And one has to take the full journey to really get the full message of a psalm. And Psalm 40 is certainly very much like that. And I think part of the counseling ministry is to help people to actually embrace their journey and understand what God is doing through even sometimes a painful journey. Psalm 40 is a bit of an unusual journey because it's what we might call an inverted psalm in the sense that it doesn't unfold the way, not that any psalm follows a particular pattern, but there's certain large patterns we sometimes expect, like a psalm moving you from peril to praise or moving you from hardship to hope. But in this particular case, this psalm opens up quite triumphantly with a lot of really exciting kind of placement of his journey. And he talks about, for example, the opening verse, you know, I, 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 he heard my cry. He pulled me up out of the miry pit. He set my feet upon a rock. He made my steps secure. He put a new song on my mouth, put praise in my lips. And I, I'm trusting the Lord. And he's multiplied his deeds and his thoughts towards me. So in, in many ways, the psalm ends the way many psalms, uh, yeah, it, it begins the way many psalms end. And so I'm tempted to like pluck off, as we often do, the first five or six verses of the psalm and make that into a great Christian chorus. But the journey continues on. And we get down really to verse six to eight, which is, as Julie mentioned, the place which is Hebrews quotes in the mouth of Jesus. And there's one other bit about the psalms which are really important in terms of how they function. We often think about how they, like we see today, how they're quoted in the New Testament. But you have to also look back and see the Psalms are taking uh, insights from the the law of God, from the the prophets, and they're putting them into sung worship. We encounter God differently when we worship him than we encounter him simply by commandments and by laws, etc. So part of this is to bring this into acts of worship. And so the way Hebrew poetry works and why they would sing these songs is they don't, their poetry isn't like our poetry. So our poetry, if you take the Asbury hymn, including one we just sang, if you open it up at random, uh, 99.9% of those hymns will have a rhyming pattern, a sound rhyming pattern. That's how English poetry works. It also has meter, it has feet, it has other things, but certainly rhyme is a key feature of poetry as we know it, especially in the hymn form. But in the Hebrew world, thank God, they didn't do that because it would be very hard to translate, as you might imagine, you have to work out all the rhyming in every language of the world. In the case of Hebrew, they don't do sound rhyming, which is what we do. They do what's called thought rhyming. 
thought realm is where you have two parallel thoughts that are similar, but a little different. You know, like the heavens are declaring the glory of God. His expanse is proclaiming the work of his hands, Psalm 19.1. They have these parallel thoughts, and it's going to resonate with each other, and that's beautiful to them. That's poetry to them. That's how most of the Psalter is, with various variations, done. This particular Psalm, verse 6, has a classic version of this, which I want to look at, and uh, we're going to leave out for a minute the, the middle piece, but just the two parallels. He says in verse 6, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, and then burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Now there is a clear example of parallelism, thought rhyming. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, burnt offering and offering you have not required. Now when you read that, you might think, maybe you should think, wait, hang on a minute. What is this about God not requiring or desiring sin offerings? I thought he did, right? I mean, you know, if you feel a little jolted by this, it's okay, feel jolted. Because you could easily point to me in Leviticus 1 to 3, for example, where God did in fact desire it and command it. So why in the world does Psalm 40 tell us that he does not desire it and did not require it. Well, the reason for this is a really back to our thought rhyming, because again, the Psalms resonate with different parts of the rest of the Old Testament, and this particular verse is not thought rhyming with Leviticus 1 to 3 at all. Every Jew knew he had required the law, and he desired it. This is resonating with the prophetic tradition, which reminds them and us today, you can obey all of God's laws, but if your heart's not in the right place, do it for the wrong purpose, you can the whole thing go, go astray, right? Following God is not just a kind of mechanical thing, is it? And so he's actually resonating with verses like 1 Samuel 15, To obey is better than the sacrifice. Or Hosea 6, 6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. This is the whole prophetic tradition coming in, which that beautiful critique on the priestly, not just critique, but balance. Or for, for Isaiah 1, I, I, verse 11 to 13, I don't delight... He actually said, I do not delight in the blood of bulls and goats and lambs. This is the prophetic tradition, reminding us that these laws don't really resonate with God until they come into your heart. So that's what's going on here. But the middle section, the middle verse of verse 6, <coughs> middle phrase, is really interesting. I'm missing your translation. I'll read one of the three ways. But you have given me, mine ESV, NRSV, RSV says, you give me an open ear. If you have NIV, it'll say, you have pierced my ear. And the quote question, what is this resonating with? Uh, the, if you say, if the, lang the language here is open ear, it clearly resonates with Isaiah 50, which that, that third servant psalm where the servant says, Lord, you have opened my ear to hear your commandments, which I think is what this text actually is trying to get at. Uh, I don't think it's actually what I grew up hearing a lot, this is resonating with Deuteronomy 15, 17, where remember how they, they, they pierced the person's ear with it all and they would be a servant forever and all of that. That's a beautiful text, but it doesn't, I don't think it connects with this one at all. And we know, we know that because how it's quoted in the New Testament. If you listen carefully in the New Testament, New Testament quotes these three verses and says, you know, it has this passage in Hebrews where it says, again, shockingly, the blood of bulls and goats, it's impossible to take away sins. That, that should be a shocker. Again, they're trying to show the, the shock of what, what it means, the full significance of Christ coming to the world. 
And it says, and when he came into the world, when Christ is the incarnate one, came into the world, he said, okay, and this is, what, what, this is mass, amazing moment in the New Testament where they put Psalm 40 into the lips of Jesus. I almost like put my Bible there. It's like he put that song in the lips of Jesus. And Jesus says, sacrifice and burnt offerings you have not desired, you know, the same thing, but a body you have prepared for me. Now, wait a minute. Psalm 40 says, and you have opened my ear. Here are the New Testament quotes and says, a body you have prepared for me. What in the world is going on? Okay, this is an example of how the Septuagint, the Greek version of the New Testament, uh, of the Old Testament operates. Sometimes, it happens here, they reward the text to bring out the meaning of it. So, for example, the Hebrew actually says, you have dug my ear. That's what it literally says, you have dug my ear. In fact, that's how ours did when we sang it. You've dug my ear. It's a picture of a piece of clay and God at the creation account. He dug ears into us. Okay, it's a celebration of creation. You have dug my ear. God created us to hear. Now, there's a certain part of that which is just a glorious generalization. Isn't it great that we can hear? But also, we can hear his will, his word. is really important in this text. So, the Septuagint says, of course, that the ear is just a, a synecdoche, a, you know, a part within the whole. The point is, he didn't just create our ears, he created our whole body. We are all, our entire body is being created in order to serve him and love him. So that when the Septuagint translated into Greek, when they got to this point, they said, not, you have dug my ear, but you have prepared me a body, you have created a body for me. So when Jesus comes to the world, he quotes, they quote the Septuagint, the Greek version, a body you have prepared for me. And the whole point of, of, of Hebrews is to show, yeah, the sacrifices were, were okay, but they weren't that great. They didn't really accomplish what God desired because we were all waiting for the sacrifice of Christ. We all know that the Jews and us too, we've heard God, but you know, we don't always hear him very well. And we finally have this beautiful servant of God who truly hears God well and perfectly. Jesus says, I have come to do your will, O God. He presents his body as a full sacrifice. And then the psalmist goes on actually to expand this to the great congregation twice in the next few verses. I'm going to fast forward a little bit because of our time. But the point is, is that this is now, both in Hebrews and Psalm, is bringing this out, that this obedience is now ours. Because see, God is preparing another body, isn't he? Not simply your body at creation, not simply the great body of God in the world, the incarnation, but ultimately the body of Christ, where we collectively embody his servanthood in the world. This is, the, this is the role of the church. This is what we're to be. We are to be little Christ in the world. We're to embody him in the world. That's why wholeness, that's why this counseling center is so important. It's about bringing us whole. We might serve him, hear his voice. I know for me, uh, if you ever speak to me, I don't hear you. It's because I occasionally will wake up when I realize I really can't hear anything. I have these periods I just simply can't, I can't hear. I got really panicky. I go down to the, I go to the Lexington Clinic or Lexington uh, like the, the ear specialist, you know, they bang all these, these uh, beams off my head. 
and they determined that I could hear fine. So I can't hear anything. Well, they found out my ears are completely clogged up with wax. <laughs> and so I have to go in like every, every year or so, and after every six months, I don't know how things are going, and literally have my ears cleaned out of all the wax. And when, I, when they finish, I'm like, oh, wow, this is what it's like to be a normal person. And I can hear everybody again. But the point is, we, that spiritual has happened. You know, the part of counseling is like cleaning out the spiritual wax so you can hear God's will again and do it in your life. Well, then this psalm, I remember I told you it was an inverted psalm, so the whole thing goes from rather than, you know, this peril to praise, it starts going into this difficulty. If we're really going to walk as a servant of God, we have challenges. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me. I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. It's really, really challenging. He's recognizing that in order to walk as a servant of God in the world, you will encounter difficulties and challenges and misunderstandings and false narratives and many, many problems. That is the nature of servanthood in the world, individually as the, as the people of God. He experiences this. And in the whole of the last part of Psalm 40, 13 to 17, is a closing prayer, very powerful. And I don't have time to explore it. I'm just say a couple things about it uh, to close out. 13 to 17 was such a powerful prayer that the compilers of the psalm decided they really needed this in book two. This is in book one. Book two as a separate psalm. So these closing verses are Psalm 70. If you go to Psalm 70, you'll see Psalm 70 is Psalm 40, verses 13 to 17. So this is a, a prayer that's been taken out that is viewed as very, very important. And we won't go into all the reasons why it's so important, but I will fast forward a little bit to John of Cassium in the 4th century. Now, John of Cassium is a Romanian uh, church father. Do you know any Romanians here? No Romanians. Well, praise God for Romanians, because John Cassian was one. And he uh, was fluent in Latin and Greek, and he decided to take verse 1 of Psalm 70, or verse, you know, verse 12 of Psalm 40, and turn it into a prayer. And this is, the, this is the one you can put on your screensaver, by the way. It's okay. This is the, this is the prayer. Psalm 70, verse 1, or Psalm 14, 40, verse 13. Oh God, deliver me. Oh Lord, make haste to help me. Now, he built a monastery, an Egyptian monastery on the coast of France, and he required his monks to pray that prayer every single day. Well, Benedict, in the 5th century, realized, came upon this, and St. Benedict would love this prayer, and he loved it so much, and the rule of St. Benedict, he required his monks to pray this prayer, hold on to your pews, seven times a day. Oh God, deliver me. Oh Lord, make haste to help me. Fast forward to the 16th century when Thomas Cranmer, who was the compiler of the Book of Common Prayer, he loved this prayer so much he put it into the, the Book of Common Prayer, which brought in the Protestant tradition. So this prayer has been prayed. This is probably the most prayed verse in the history of the world. Praise God for the monks. Uh, and has been prayed throughout the history of the world for 18 centuries. And so it's a great prayer to remember. And I think a part of servanthood, the posture of servanthood, is praying for God to help us and deliver us as we walk through life. Oh God, deliver me. Oh Lord, 
make haste to help me. The incarnation opens up our ears and helps us to embody his life as we walk through a world full of peril. The verse 12 of Psalm 40. I'm going to close with this story. Uh, when I worked in India, I had the great privilege of working with a, a man, young man, now he's a senior leader, Daniel Massey. We, we did church planning together. He was my student early on, but he became eventually one of our regional church planning leaders, and he eventually opened a little a training center in a, a, a town in North India. I won't mention the town, but in North India. And I've been with him many, many times over the years. But he has a little training center there, like a little sub-center that he can train 20 uh, young men and women in that center. Uh, but he lives in a part of a neighborhood which is the hotbed of the RSS. This is the extreme nationalistic group in India that wants to exterminate Christians and put them out. And it's a great force of trial for all Christians in India today and for some years now. So he lives on the street just two doors down from the man who's the head of that group in that city. And he always breathed murderous threats against Daniel and made all kinds of, it was, it was just a very difficult for him. He was experiencing Psalm 40 verse 12 every day of his life. But he asked the Lord, he prayed this prayer, Lord, deliver me. Make haste to help me. Give me insight. How can I walk through this world and have this training center? Because this location is a hard location to get with that many places to house people. Just two doors down in a street full of RSS people. And the Lord gave him an insight because he found out through the grapevine that the head of the RSS daughter was getting married. Now in India, marriages are a really big deal. I mean, they're a big deal everywhere, but they're really a big deal there. I mean, all the family comes, it's a big deal. You have to house people up, it's a big, big thing. And so he decided, you know what? I'm going to do something that will surprise him. Because see, there's a force greater than hate in the world. It's the power of love. And he, he was afraid to go to the man's house, even though he's two doors down, because he, he thought he might get killed. It was that serious. But he happened to see him in the streets. And he said to him, Brother, you know, brother in India, Bharat, brother, uh, brother, um, I hear that your daughter's getting married. And the man said, yes, he is. Now, it's very expensive to house people, and it's very expensive. Uh, rental rooms is very expensive in India. So Daniel says to him, listen, I have a place here with a place for 20 people, just two doors down from you, right? Just, just bang and bang. And I want to open up my entire place for you. Put your whole family there. And it's all for free. The man couldn't believe it. But it was an amazing provision. And so he accepted it. And then, on the, 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 this was a three-day event. So this whole thing, they were there for three days. And so during the three days, of course, all the men were, all the ones that were studying there were, when they took them home on vacation, they, the place was empty, had them fill the place up. And he had the women from the church come. <clears throat> and they prepared tea every morning. They went on, you know, apko chai chai, do you want tea, do you want tea, do you want tea? And they served tea every morning to all the people 
this is there for this wedding party. And the result was, by his embodying the servanthood of Christ, he changed this man's attitude. This man's still part of RSS. He still doesn't like Christians, but he'll defend Daniel Massey. He will let anybody come near him. He lives our train center alone because an act of servanthood, someone who heard how they could live differently and maybe approach it a bit differently. This is the power of the gospel. This is the journey of Psalm 40. May God help us to walk as his servants in the world. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the servant who said, I have come to do your will. Lord, help us to be the embodied, the people of God who do your will in the world. Help us to hear, help us to listen, help us to obey. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.